Well, I invite you to turn to our passage this morning. It's over on page three. Over on page three. The verse reference got cut off on the previous page. It's 1 Timothy 3, if you're looking at a physical Bible. 1 Timothy 3, we're, uh, we're, tr- we're coming to this passage as a part of our series on the church and all her servants, looking at what the church is and what it's called to be about and how God's people are to be a part of that work. And we've seen how key it is to think, as, as the New Testament writers did, of the church as a body, like a physical body. It's, it, it's all connected, united together with one purpose, but yet made up of many different parts, all of which are important and active, uh, but doing a different function, uh, all for the good of the body. And so we've seen how all believers are called to be servants uh, in the church, uh, but we focused in. On, on two particular parts or roles, as we, we talked individual weeks about elders and then a week about deacons. We're going to return to that uh, this morning as we go to a passage that puts both of those positions right side by side, but has a slightly different focus, the focus being on who is qualified uh, for, for these particular roles. Uh, and so this is especially helpful as we're looking forward to our congregational meeting and voting on uh, a new elder, a new deacon. Uh, we'll, we'll look to God's word to guide us. So let's, let's read, first of all, 1 Timothy 3. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil." Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, and let them also be tested first, and let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves, and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things so that to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you would, through your spirit, open our eyes to your truth, understand your word, to be encouraged and strengthened and guided by it. Lord, for your glory we do pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So there you are. You're sitting at a congregational meeting, and you have a little slip of white paper in your hand. 
Uh, it's the time to vote on whether or not there should be an election for a new elder or a deacon. Uh, two different names under consideration for, for, uh, for those roles. And you get to vote yes for that person or no for that person. How do you decide? Now, you, you think, well, these guys, I mean, after all, they're nice, you like them, but, but it's got to be more than that, doesn't it? Uh, I mean, after all, you realize this is an officer in Christ's church, someone who's going to be in a position of, of authority and influence. Uh, you may be, as you're sitting with there with that piece of paper in your hand, you might even think of situations that you know of where the, the wrong guy got into a position of leadership. And you saw with your own eyes the kind of mess that that made. And therefore, you're, you're, you're careful uh, taking this very seriously. This is serious business, you think to yourself. Okay, so how do you decide? How do you know what a good elder or a good deacon looks like? Well, Scripture. God himself uh, guides us through his word. And there's no better place in God's word to go than 1 Timothy 3. Because here you get those two positions side by side uh, with a detailed list of qualifications in a context that's especially helpful. See, here's, here's Paul. He's writing to Timothy. Timothy is his, uh, is his son in the faith. They, they traveled together along several of the missionary journeys. Paul mentors him. And now, uh, now he's been sent off, Timothy has, uh, as, a, as a young pastor and a church uh, leader. Uh, he's been sent off to the church in Ephesus. And he's there um, without Paul. I, caring for the church. And Paul writes to him. He describes this in verses 14 and 15, what we just read. And Paul writes to him saying, well, I'm hoping to come to you, but there's a chance I might get delayed. So if I do get to, to delay, I get do get delayed, I'm going to write these things to you so that you know how things should be done in, he says, God's household. Right? Serious business. Right? God's very family, God present among his people, and he says, we got to be careful, Timothy. You can't, we can't just do whatever we want. This is God's household. And so he writes to him uh, throughout the letter about how things are to be done in God's church. Uh, he writes to him in the letter about what should be taught in the church, uh, what errors should be avoided, how to pray, and in our section that we just read, who should be leaders in the church. And so a great place to look uh, as we ourselves consider the very same question. And, and we could break the passage down into a number of different parts. Here's the first thing we could say. The first step to spotting good servant leaders in the church is understand the office. Understand the office. And here we get a little bit of a review of things we talked about a couple weeks ago. So it's a, if you weren't here, a quick, uh, quick introduction. And if you were here, kind of bring these things to mind. Uh, you gotta, if you want to pick the right person, you got to understand what the job is, right? Same way as if you're at work and you're in charge of hiring someone new, you got to understand what you're hiring them to do so you get the right person for the work. You could have someone who's a great person, put them in the wrong role, and it's going to be a mess. Okay, so what, is, what are these particular leaders called to, to do? Well, here Paul mentions two uh, ordained jobs within the church. Uh, he says, verse 1, speaks of overseers, and verse 8, deacons. So one at a time, overseer. 
This is the same uh, position as elder. Uh, those two terms are used interchangeably uh, in the New Testament. Sometimes in the very same verse, go back and forth. Overseer, elder, same thing. Not two different, two different offices, same thing. Elder, overseer. Uh, and actually, the, the title there, overseer, gives you a little bit of a sense of what the job actually entails. It involves overseeing the, the church of God and the people of the church. Overseeing. Uh, it's further described in verse 5, where this work of the overseer is described as caring for God's church. Caring for God's uh, church. Uh, actually, Jesus uses that, that word caring. It's not a very common word in the New Testament, but that word for caring is used by Jesus in his parable of the Good Samaritan. You remember that, that, that parable about the guy who was robbed and beaten and left for dead? And along comes the Samaritan, and he, he picks the guy up, he takes him to the inn, and we're told that he takes him to the inn and cares for him. And that's the word that Paul's using. That the, the elder overseer is to care for God's church. Uh, so it, even just there, it gives you something of an idea of how you might spot uh, what a good elder, a good overseer looks like. He's going to be someone who would do a good job caring for God's church. Caring uh, for the sheep of God's flock. You get another little hint about the job in verse 2. Uh, Paul says that elders, overseers, are to be, quote, able to teach. Able to teach. Now, a couple weeks ago when we looked at, we looked at elders uh, all by itself, we said that in Paul's mind, in much of the New Testament mind, that term elder or overseer kind of embodies two slightly different roles under one head. Um, those who focus in on just ruling, and those who rule and also teach. Um, at 1 Timothy 5.17, if we had time, we could flip forward a couple chapters in Timothy. And there he talks about that some elders, they're just focusing in on, on ruling, overseeing, but there's others uh, who, other elders who focus their work called to focus in on preaching and teaching. So sometimes we reflect that in our language, uh, in some church settings, they speak of ruling elders and teaching elders, uh, or, or ruling elders and ministers or pastors, but you get the idea. Under the same heading, elder, in the New Testament, you get both of those. Ruling elder, think someone like Chris. Uh, teaching elder, minister, pastor, think me. Um, but in our passage in chapter 3, we're reminded that all elders are called to be able to teach. They might not focus their work on the ministry of preaching and teaching, uh, but all of them should be able to teach. And so, take Chris, for example. Uh, he is not called to primarily be a preacher and teacher up here every Sunday. Uh, but yet, if you kind of watch him from a distance, you realize he actually does quite a bit of teaching. Uh, sometimes it's in a, a more public setting, a Sunday school class. Uh, a lot of times it's just kind of one-on-one, -on -one, interacting with God's people, but communicating God's truth, encouraging with God's word. It's a kind of teaching. That's what, that's what elder overseers are called to, to do. Uh, they might not do all preaching and teaching up front, but they have to be able to communicate God's word and the truth uh, to God's people, encouraging them uh, with the good news of the gospel, warning against errors and, and ungodliness. Uh, elders have to be able to teach, which is why, not a coincidence, 
that for uh, some months now, uh, we've had Rob doing the little opening exercises in Sunday school where he does a little bit of teaching the catechism and hymns and not a coincidence, so that you get to kind of see, is this guy able to teach? Um, part of the job. You go to the section on deacons, and there, it doesn't give this this, this uh, idea of able to teach. Uh, right? That's not in the deacon section. Yeah, because deacons, as we transition, uh, focus on something different. Uh, their, their work focuses in on serving, on what they do with their hands and their, and their feet. Uh, in fact, the word deacon even means servant, one who serves. Uh, we saw in our study a couple weeks ago in Acts 6 uh, that the service of those initial deacons was the caring of, of widows within the church. Here were, were needs, mercy needs, and it were, it were these uh, individuals who were called to lead the church in caring uh, for this important need within the body. Deacons are those who are called to serve, called to care for the physical, tangible needs of the body, to lead the church in works of, of mercy. Uh, it's, it's primarily about doing rather than teaching. Um, now, deacons do need to know the faith and know it well. Verse 9, for example, uh, Paul says that they must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Right? They need to know the truth of the scriptures, uh, not as much so they can stand up and, and teach it extensively, uh, be, but because they end up teaching the faith, as one preacher put it, they end up teaching the faith with their hands and their feet. Teaching the faith with their hands and their feet, through their doing. Uh, they, they, they show forth what it means to be a believer, so you have to know that. Um, so over, over the, the, the months that we've been doing officer training with Rob and John, uh, one of the things I discovered uh, was that John really knows his Bible and really knows theology really well. Um, but given the option, uh, he would prefer to decline the role of leading the opening exercises and teaching the catechism lesson. He would, if you asked him, he'd say, I'd do it if you really won't need me to. But given the choice, he'd say, let Rob do that. But if I give him something to do, man, he's all in, and I just know all I have to do is say, and it's done. Right? You get the idea. God has different parts of the body doing different things. Uh, it's not like strength and weakness. It's like, oh, here's God's wisdom. Now, of course, it's the congregations. You will get to choose whether you see this as well. But part of the thing that makes me excited about this particular election, these particular officers, is you could start to see, like, look, look at God. He's had different people, and they could do different things, and they're, they're equipped for it. They're designed for it. It's, uh, it's exactly what God intends with his body, different parts with one complete task together. So elders, deacons, different, different work, and the specifics of the work helps you to understand who is the best person for which uh, which position. So, understand the office. But where Paul really spends most of his time is on this second heading, assess the character. Assess the character. The vast majority of this passage is Paul describing for both elders and deacons not a list of skills, but a list of godly character traits. A list of godly character traits. If you put the, this list side by side, you see there's actually a lot of similarities, a lot of overlap. Uh, in each case, you have Paul using broad terms uh, and then getting specific in some areas. 
So broad descriptions. So for example, he repeats the word dignity in both cases. Dignity. In other words, someone worthy of respect. Uh, he uses the term, verse 2, above reproach, which is kind of a synonym for what shows up in verse 10 as blameless. There are synonyms. Uh, above reproach, blameless. Not meaning sinless. I mean, nobody would qualify for this, for that, this side of heaven. No one's sinless. But above reproach, blameless, in the sense that you really couldn't bring a serious, scandalous charge against this person. At least, not with a straight face. Not something that would be believable. Because, well, they're, they're above reproach. Verse 7 adds this one, that uh, for the elder, he must be well thought of by outsiders, by non-Christians. Um, and so you could say, go to this guy's co-workers. Right? You could you could you could go to go to Let It Be or a Shawnee High School, and you could ask Rob's fellow teachers, uh, "Hey, you know what? We're thinking about making this guy an elder. What do you think of Rob?" And you might get something like this. Well, you know, actually, we think he's a little nuts for believing the Bible, but he's someone we can trust. He's a person of honesty and integrity. Uh, we can trust him. Even think he's a little crazy religiously. Uh, that's the kind of reputation you would expect from someone who would be qualified uh, to be an elder. So these broader terms, above reproach, uh, without uh, uh, blameless, then you get into some specifics that Paul mentions. A couple of them show up in both lists. So, for example, in both places, he names some of the big sins that are to be avoided, big sins that particularly tend to enslave. Uh, so he mentions the areas of alcohol, money, and sex in each, in each list. Uh, sins in those areas uh, are ones that tend to enslave and control and, and take over one's life. Uh, so in each case, he, he mentions alcohol. Not that the, the officer uh, has to be a teetotaler, but they can't be addicted to much wine. They can't be a drunkard, controlled, enslaved. Uh, money, in both cases, not greedy. Uh, not given to the love of money, not controlled or enslaved by money. Uh, in each list, we're told that the, uh, the one qualified is to be the husband of one wife, uh, or even more literally, a, a one-woman man. A one-woman man. Now, if we have time, and I can explain to you uh, later if you're interested. Uh, this is almost definitely not referring to uh, people who were divorced and remarried, as if, if you were biblically divorced and then remarried, you couldn't be an officer. That is not what this is referring to. And if you, we could take time later and I could, we could get into that. But the point that Paul seems to be making clearly here is that the, the, the one who is equipped for this, called to this, uh, is one who is faithful to his wife and his vows to his wife. Uh, he's, he's sexually faithful. He's a one-woman man. Um, so you get these three big areas, right? Alcohol, money, sex... Places where sin tends to corrupt and enslave. And, and not talking about like sinlessness, but one who's not, not ensnared, uh, not enslaved, uh, who is free from such control uh, of, of wrongdoing. The section on overseers also adds a number of different uh, elements that don't show up under deacon. Uh, they tend to be areas that involve a lot of interpersonal interaction interpersonal relationships. So under overseers, it mentions hospitable to others, 
not violent but gentle to others, not quarrelsome with others. And you can see how those would be really important for, for one who serves as, as an elder, where it's a lot of people work, where you're interacting with people both in, in difficult situations and struggling situations, where you, you often have to face criticism, sometimes uh, undeserved harsh criticism. You have to be someone mature in, in interpersonal relationships uh, to be able to handle that wisely. But the, the big theme, godly character. Godly character. It kind of begs the question, why? You know, it should strike us that Paul spends most of his time and is writing to Timothy about who to choose. Most, most, most of his time talking not about gifts or skill sets, but about character. Why is that? Why spend most of the time talking about character not as much about skills, about godliness, not as much about gifts. Well, it's, it's not that gifts or skills are irrelevant. Uh, we already mentioned they're, they're implied uh, and even stated. An elder has to be able to teach. He has to be uh, skilled at leading and caring. Uh, the deacon needs to be competent in theology, needs to know how to serve wisely and well. Uh, the skills, the gifts, they are important, but he spends more time on the character. That seems to be the most critical piece. Perhaps we could get, wrap our minds around it by considering what it would be like to have one, but not the other. To have all the skills and gifts, but not the character. Can you picture that? Uh, so the, the leader who is incredibly skilled, incredibly gifted, but doesn't have the godly character to match. That individual is not just ineffective in their work, they're dangerous. Right? right? You, you, can you picture it? The, the, the charismatic leader, everybody wants to follow this guy. Look at him. Just naturally people flock to him. Or, or, the, or the gifted teacher, you know, just draws people and everybody hanging on his every word. Imagine all those gifts, but doesn't have any of the character that we're talking about here. Again, that person is dangerous. Right? That's the kind of person, if put in a position of leadership, who can do serious, serious damage to the church as a whole, to individual sheep. Some of you, this isn't just an imagine that kind of situation. You've seen that. You've seen gifted people without the character in positions of leadership, and it is bad. So Paul, wisely, under the inspiration of the Spirit, saying, let's talk a lot about character. Let's talk a lot about character. You want to spot a qualified leader, assess their character. And, which flows right into the next one, uh, evaluate the proving ground. Because Paul, in both cases, says there is a, there's a context where one gets to prove themselves, and that's in the family. In both cases, under uh, elder overseers and deacons, Paul says that the individual must be one who manages his own household well. Manages his own household well. Why is that important? Well, Paul explains in verse 5. For if someone doesn't know how to manage his own household well, how will he care for God's church? You get the idea. If, if someone can't lead a small flock well, he is not going to do a good job in leading a larger flock. 
If, if someone's a, a tyrant at home, he will be a tyrant in the church. If someone's lazy and, and apathetic at home, he's going to be lazy and apathetic in serving uh, the church. Um, so you, you want to you evaluate? Well, look at, look at the small context. Uh, evaluate the proving ground. You can even go through the list of character traits that, that, he, uh, that Paul lists here and ask him about, about what you see in terms of the family. Okay, so go to verses 2 and 3, for example. And you could say, not just self-controlled, respectable, gentle, generally, but you could say, okay, is he self-controlled and respectable with his kids? Uh, is he gentle with his wife? Uh, or is he quarrelsome, even violent? Right? The proving ground will give you a real clear idea uh, of what things are going to look like when giving bigger responsibility. Uh, in many ways, it, Paul is, is really living out Jesus' own teaching. Remember Jesus talking about the one who is faithful in little, being entrusted with much? Yeah, uh, because one is going to give you an idea of the other. So if you have a, an individual who is faithful and loving as a servant leader at home to his wife, to his kids, uh, that's going to give you an idea of what kind of leader he's going to be when given greater responsibility, uh, larger responsibility. Uh, so Paul presents the family then as the proving ground uh, for, for church leaders. Uh, you want to spot a good church leader, or you want a good family man. But maybe there's a, a question that deserves a few minutes of, of thought, though we could spend a lot more time about this, which is, well, well what, about, what about women in leadership? Um, in, in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, along with many most conservative uh, Bible-believing denominations, it's only men who are qualified to serve in roles of ordained leadership. Um, why is that? Well, I can only speak for us. Uh, but, but for us, it's, it's not a matter of preference uh, or, or a matter of, of just cultural, this is how we do it, but an attempt specifically to be faithful to what the Bible teaches. Uh, in our passage, for example, you see it reflected in a number of different ways. So you have Paul very clearly speaking of both elders and deacons uh, as the husband of one wife. Right? Husband of one wife. Clearly, only guys can qualify for that. Um, we could go back just a couple verses before this in chapter 2, and you see there Paul is addressing the issue even more specifically. Uh, and there he says, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. And remember the letter as a whole. He's talking to Timothy about what's going on in the church. So he's not talking about in every sphere of life. He's not talking about uh, giving some opinion on what happens at the workplace. You know, can a, can a woman be an effective boss? He's just not getting into that. Uh, he's talking about the church narrowly. And he says there, the church narrowly uh, is, it, well, he... He talks, he says, uh, that, that women aren't to be in positions of authority within the church. Uh, or, and again, then he, again, he gets specific about that and talks about ordained leadership. So not involved in any kind of ministry, but specifically in these ordained roles. Talks about elder, talks about deacon, husband of one woman. Um, Paul, you might say, well, maybe you're just being, uh, you're just reflecting your own culture. Maybe you're just saying, well, they're in Ephesus. Uh, it would never work to have, a, to have a female elder, so Timothy, don't do that. Um, but you look, if we had time again, back in chapter 2, and he doesn't talk about the cultural 
uh, background to it. He talks all the way back to creation. Uh, he, he grounds his statement in, in Genesis 1 and 2. He says, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. Uh, he goes back to the way things were made, uh, where, where we bring to mind Genesis, God making the man and the woman, and declaring that they are equally in the image of God, that they're both made by God in his image, in his likeness, which in and of itself would be a very radical statement for the ancient world. Uh, but, but, he, but right there, in his image, in his likeness, male and female, so wonderfully equal and alike in their standing and value and worth and importance uh, before God and should be before us. Uh, but then it's in that very uh, context in Genesis that God does describe that though they're completely alike in value and worth and likeness, there's a, there's a slight difference. Uh, God describes uh, Eve as being one corresponding to Adam. So just like him, it's just a little bit different. And it's part of that little bit different that enables man, the man and the woman to accomplish what God intends for them. Uh, part of it, it's not everything, but part of it, what he's going to give to Adam and Eve is say, be fruitful and multiply. Well, the only way that works is if you have man and woman alike, only just a little bit different. That's how the miracle of, of being fruitful and multiply works. And Paul refers to that to say, this is part of what's reflected within the church. Not talking about some better than others, but talking about uh, alike and equal before the standing of God, but just a little bit different to do different things and accomplish what God uh, has planned. Uh, and so part of what that seems to reflect, according to uh, the New Testament, is that uh, leadership within the church is restric restricted to qualified men. Which does bring up verse 11. Uh, there in your Bible, uh, their wives likewise must be, must be dignified and slanderers, uh, but not dignified, uh, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Now, if you had a physical Bible in front of you, or maybe on your app, you might see a footnote under that, uh, their wives. Uh, you click on that footnote or look at the bottom, and it would say, at least in the ESV, that that word wives could be translated as women. Um, it, it's just in Greek, it's the same word. If you want to talk about woman or wife, it, it's the same word. You get the meaning based on the context. That's how language often works. Uh, so the question is, well, what's the context here? Is it talking about wives, as in the wives of deacons, or is it talking about a, a completely different group, women who serve in the role as deacons, which some believe it to, to be. That Paul is here taking a break from talking about deacons, and now he's talking about deaconesses, female deacons. Um, I think that doesn't fit the context. Uh, even though there's some good people who would, who would make a case for deaconesses, uh, it doesn't fit the context for a number of different reasons. Uh, one is that in our very passage, that word woman, wife, is used tw two other times. In each of those cases, it's referring to wife uh, specifically. Uh, it also doesn't match what Paul has just said in chapter 2 about authority within the church. Uh, it also then makes better sense of the flow where Paul goes from uh, qualifications of deacon to wife-woman and then back to deacon. So if it's referring to wife, then it kind of makes sense. He's still talking about what a qualified deacon looks like. Uh, to kind of go out to a different, completely different uh, group and then come back is kind of an odd way to structure it. So all that to say, I think the ESV has it right. Now what's being referred to here, 
uh, is the wives of deacons, which actually helps to, to make the point we're making that there's a, though there is a difference in terms of role uh, within the church, there is still great importance uh, in the work, according to God, uh, of, of male and female. Uh, and here you see it reflected in, in wives. This, this sort of makes sense, that the wife of a deacon is in a, a really important place to be able to contribute and, and be a teammate with, uh, with her husband deacon. Uh, because after all, what's the deacons going to do? They're going to be involved in some really sensitive situations. Uh, deacons like Acts 6, they're involved in ministry to widows. Yeah, that would be really helpful to have a really skilled, competent wife who can, who can be right there alongside as a teammate in that ministry. Similar needs uh, will crop up where it's incredibly helpful. And so it makes sense that Paul would say, yeah, okay, deacon, not just having uh, your own personal character, but having a wife teammate in, uh, in the work at home and in the work in the church uh, who is able to come alongside wisely, skillfully, with good character uh, to be able to, to help. And we've certainly seen this at, at Emmanuel. The wives of our, of our deacons, present and past, uh, along with wives of our elders, have been some of the most important, critical, valuable servants that we have. I praise God uh, for, for all of them. You can see the, the wisdom of the Lord. But on to our, on to our last point. And, and here's where we kind of back up at the passage as a whole. And you take in the whole thing that Paul's trying to communicate. Uh, this whole list of characteristics of what, a, uh, of what an ordained leader in the church looks like. Now, what can we say about this list as a whole, or these two lists as a whole? And we take in the details, above reproach, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, not a drunkard, not a lover of money, and on and on. What can we say about these lists as a whole? I think we can conclude by saying two things that we kind of put side by side. One is, when we look at this list, we, we get a description of really what every believer is called to, and what every believer is called to strive to be, right? Uh, there's not any person in the church who could say, you know what, I really want an elder to be self-controlled. I'm so glad I don't have to worry about that, right? That, that, that's, that's not what's going on here. You just look in other places in the New Testament. All these character qualities uh, or what every believer is called to. Uh, or as I heard one guy put it this week, the Bible knows nothing of a two-speed Christianity. The Bible knows nothing of a two-speed Christianity. Uh, as if they're, they're kind of this, this one group who sign on uh, to this like high-octane, fast-lane version of the faith, and then there's everybody else who can just kind of settle into the slow lane. Oh, they're good for them. I'm going to just take it slow. Uh, that's not how the Bible talks about the faith. They go down this list, and this is what all of us are called uh, to strive for. Uh, what God strengthens all of us to live out more uh, and more. So leaders, in that sense, aren't to be a picture of kind of a different breed of believer. Uh, instead, what they're really to be a picture of is something of an exemplar. Uh, like, oh, I look at that person and I see, I see a little bit of a picture of what it looks like to be uh, a follower of Jesus. Not perfectly, of course, but, but I, I, this is what I'm supposed to, to walk in uh, for the most part. So uh, this is what every believer is called to, to strive for. And secondly, as we take in the list, we can see another thing is uh, the only one who really does this perfectly is Jesus. 
right? I mean, if any of us held ourselves up to this list, Above reproach, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, not a drunkard, not a lover of money, and on and on and on. You know, any of us held ourselves up to this list really in detail, we would say, wow, who is sufficient for this? That's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians. Right? Who is sufficient for these things? There's none of us who can really nail this, walk away and say, I'm good. Um, but Jesus can. Doesn't this, doesn't this list really describe Jesus to a T? I mean, talk about somebody who's above reproach uh, or, or someone who's sober-minded and self-controlled. Uh, someone, even when attacked, who's not violent, but he's gentle. Uh, someone who's not quarrelsome or a lover of money. And this is, this is Jesus perfectly. And there really is our hope. Whether, whether we're a leader or not, our hope is, is Jesus. And sure enough, the Bible talks about Jesus as the ultimate overseer of our souls, the ultimate elder. Uh, or Jesus as the, the great servant, the great deacon who, who comes not to be served, but to, to serve and give his life. Right? Jesus is the ultimate of all of it. And there's our hope for all of us. And there's where our forgiveness comes from. When, when we fall short of this list, frequently, uh, our hope is Jesus. And that he lived it perfectly, and he died to purchase our forgiveness. And so we run to Christ for forgiveness. But also Jesus, in his strength, to more and more live this out. Because that's part of what Jesus does as well. Uh, is, he, is he lives this out, and then gives us his spirit. Uh, so that we not just have forgiveness, as important as that is, we also have his strength, his resurrection power, so that more and more, uh, though we couldn't do it in our own strength, more and more with his strength, we start to look like him. We start to live this out more and more. So none of us have to say, I can't do this, I could never do this. Well, by yourself, no. But with the strength and the spirit of Christ, none of us can say never. Uh, none of us should give up. Why? Because you have the spirit of the resurrection uh, you have Jesus, whose very plan for you is to make you look more like him. And so we can not only hope, we can actually expect uh, that as, as we uh, work out our salvation with fear and trembling, that it is God who is at work in us uh, to will and to work for his good pleasure. And so it gives us, it gives us forgiveness uh, in Jesus, but it also gives us strength in Jesus. And that's really for all of us. So, so yes, it helps us to understand how to vote at a congregational meeting, uh, but it also shows us more of the Savior, what he's done in his righteous life and his death, there's our forgiveness, but also what his spirit is working in, in his church, in you and in me, all to his glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the power of the resurrection. We thank you for uh, the love of Christ. Uh, Lord, that he has, has done it, and he has done it perfectly. Uh, and Lord, and that we are washed clean and forgiven through faith in him. Uh, Lord, and thank you for the spirit of Christ that indwells your people. Uh, Lord, we pray that as we as a body uh, strive to, to see Christ lived out here, uh, that, that you, will, you will be our strength. Uh, that you will help to, to put leaders in place who can, who can help us along in the journey. Uh, but also, Lord, that you would do that work, that each of us might reflect your beauty and your glory, we pray. 
In Jesus' name, amen.